Let's come before the Lord and ask him to bless us as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you and praise you that we have the word of God in our language, that we can read it together, think about it and meditate upon it. We thank you for the warnings that sometimes it brings to us and for the record of those who went before you, some doing well, some not so well. And as we think about Solomon and have heard of his favoured walk, we are concerned that things turn so bad for him. So lead us into your truth, we pray, and guide us through as we think about these things together for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I've begun my message the same way for the last two weeks and I see no reason to change this morning. For the last few chapters of 1 Kings and for the last few weeks, King Solomon has been sitting on his glorious throne on a platform and I've asked you to imagine him on the top of a mountain and all the spotlights that you could ever imagine have been pointing to him, shining on him. He is the world's number one man. He is by now the greatest and the richest king that the world has ever seen. He is a living wonder of the world with knowledge you cannot surpass and riches you cannot count. But just over beyond the plateau upon which Solomon sits on his throne is a gentle slope. In fact, there's a gentle slope in every direction that you turn. And because Solomon is on the summit of the mountain, the slope runs downward on every side and eventually leads to a sheer cliff that plummets all the way down back to sea level and beyond. We enter the world of chapter 11. This is where the downhill slide really happens. The chapter opens with the three words, Now King Solomon. The NIV puts it these three words, King Solomon, however... And that, however, is a big one. Here is where the slide begins. Here is where the fall takes shape. The seeds were planted long ago, but now they have begun to bear fruit and the fruit is not pretty and, in fact, quite ugly. And given the sheer size of that However, it is important to note that no man can fall from those dizzying heights in just one moment. The cracks must have appeared somewhere and been papered over. And so they were. We saw last week the collection of Solomon's horses and wealth and armoury were reaching out of control proportions 
God blessed Solomon with many riches, that's true. But Solomon himself was doing his utmost to get more and more riches. And given that the Apostle Paul said that those who desire to get rich fall into a trap, this trap has been well set for Solomon. Like fire, wealth and riches are a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. And if Solomon was far wiser than you or I in so many subjects according to the gift that God gave him, how was it that such a wise man could fall so terribly? How was it that his wisdom departed him? How was it that he couldn't see the trap set before him of his own making? Well, the answer must be he was blinded by greed. And into that equation entered another sin that blinds, lust. It's a terrifying thought, especially for those of us who are men, who we, we know our weakness so well. It's a terrifying thought that neutral things like money and good things like the female gender that were used to lead such a fall, Solomon to such a fall. It's like the man who survives a horrific car crash only to step out of the crumpled car unharmed and to slip on a banana peel and break his hip. It's not just the big temptations that can do the damage. It's the little ones. It's the small ones. It's the ones we tolerate It's the ones we put up with. It's the ones we ignore. It's the ones we're not prepared for. That's why it's so important for us to study a man like Solomon to see why it was that he fell. We've seen some of the warning signs that we've been setting up Solomon for this fall. We've seen his small compromises in the area of riches and political alliances But here in chapter 11, we are confronted with his Achilles heel, his great weakness, and the opening through which his fall came. Let's see them. First, we see how he fell for the trap of unholy alliances. It can all be summarised in the first few words of verse 1. Now, King Solomon, however loved many foreign women beside Pharaoh's daughter. Moabite women, Ammonite women, Edomite women, Sidonian women, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter marriage enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for they surely will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Now this is so tragic. The text doesn't merely record what Solomon did in marrying these extra wives, but shows us that Solomon violated God's law as he did so. Uh, The quote is from Exodus chapter 34, verse 16, in which, in the larger context, verses 11 to 16, where God said, Observe what I command you this day. 
I will drive out before you these Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars. You shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited to eat of their sacrifice and you take your daughters, sorry, their daughters for your sons and their daughters who whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. Just for good measure, God repeated these words in Deuteronomy 7. And just in case you missed how clear the first set of of commandments actually were. Of course, there was nothing ambiguous about that, was there? God did not give them in such a way that they were open to interpretation. They were cut and dried. And the issue was not one of interracial marriage being forgiven, forbidden. It was never that ethnic background was the issue. It was always to do with worship. And the reason for that is because when we unite with another in a one flesh union, marriage binds us to another person and we are brought into a position in which we are a significant influence and also significantly influenced by the other. The text tells us Solomon was influenced by marrying these women that he shouldn't have. And then he capitulated to their wishes. He allowed them to have their own idols and these idols and these gods became his idols and his gods. And their sin became his sin. And their gods became his gods. And their worship became his worship. And their lack of devotion to the one true God became his own lack of devotion to the one true God. I think you get the picture. The downward spiral is spiralling so fast that it can't be stopped now. And then we hear a detail from the text that makes your own head spin. How could he have 700 wives? How could he have 300 more concubines? How could he think that having a thousand partners would ever work out? What did his first wife think about the thousand others that he brought home? The mind boggles. Having one wife is all that a man can handle, but a thousand? And polygamy was tolerated among the ancient Hebrews, though most in the ancient Near East had but one wife, though it was widely understood the more wives you took just indicated how important you were. And so for a king to have a large harem larger than any of his subjects was to directly violate the law of God that had been passed down through Moses to address him personally as king and yet he deliberately ignored it and treated it as nothing. He could hardly defend himself and say he was ignorant of the, the requirement. He knew. There's no sadder picture of than the ugliness of his apostasy. 
The Apostle Paul taught that believers can only marry believers. The classic text quoted is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now in the context, Paul is not speaking about marriage and dating, but about going into idol temples with unbelievers. But the principle of what he's saying has application to many aspects of life, including marriage and dating. Yoking an animal of one species with another was a practice forbidden in the Old Testament. And Paul saw that this had implications for relationships between believers and unbelievers. Farm animals yoked together won't pull in the same direction. They'll reach different destinations. For the two must work as one. And so it is the closest of all human relationships. It calls for a unity of heart and mind and faith. And Solomon got that wrong. Secondly, we note that Solomon fell for the trap of a deceitful heart. These words come from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The Lord says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And this verse comes hot on the heels of the description given there of the man who trusts the Lord, who's like a tree planted by the water. Yes, we might say that Solomon at one point in his life did trust the Lord. He was like a tree planted by the water, but we can't say that any more about him. The text is intent on referring to Solomon's heart many times. In verse 1, he loved many foreign women. In verse 2, that marrying foreign women will turn a man's heart. But he clung to these women in love. Verse, the next verses not only emphasise the 700 wives and the 300 concubines, but that these also turned his heart Verse 4 mentions his heart three times. First to say in his old age, his heart went after other gods. Then to say that he was not wholehearted for God. And then to compare his heart with David's heart. Ever since the discovery by Williams Harvey in the 16th century that our blood circulation is caused by our hearts, the heart has become the centre of all things in our culture. Who we are. And from our hearts issues forth our lives. And what's true physically of us is also true spiritually. If our hearts belong to God, then our whole lives will follow after him. But if our hearts are divided, then we will soon abandon our faithful God for something or someone else. The first thing we see is that sin begins small and progresses until it takes a whole person. A person has fallen in sin long before he is exposed in disgrace. As we have heard, Solomon violated a very clear command of scripture and no doubt like us, he would have had many justifications for doing so. Political expediency, 
forging new economic alliances, securing Israel's borders against war and enemies. No doubt these and more would have been used to spiritualise his actions, his disobedience. But it's in this compromise that opens up Solomon for further sin. Unequally yoked in marriage, tolerating false gods, even participating in the worship of false gods. And if that worship of the god Moloch included child sacrifice, which it did, then Solomon has gone into things that are abominable. If we let sin loose in our lives, we will end up doing things we never imagined we would do. But note this too about Solomon's heart. Note his age. Verse 4 says, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart. Many will think this kind of sin is something that only young people will fall for. But here we see the worst of sins can be committed at an old age. For surely the text is highlighting these as the worst of Solomon's sins and the one that had the greatest impact upon the nation. We cannot let down our guard simply because we've left youth behind and immaturity behind. One of the fallacies of overcoming sin is the fallacy of telling yourself you could never commit a sin like that because you are too old and too mature. It's a lie. Don't believe it. You still commit that sin in your heart because you still love sin in your heart, no matter how old you are. The only way to stop sinning when we're old or young is by cultivating a love for God that surpasses everything else. Then also still thinking about Solomon's heart, we see too here that Solomon was not wholehearted in his service of the Lord. I came across this saying in preparing this message, it's harder to be 99% for God than 100%. 99% for God than 100%. And why is that so? Because the 1% is a landing ground for Satan to crowbar his way into our lives. It's 1% of gangrene that will putrefy the rest of the healthy limb. It's the 1% that enables us to be caught off guard without having put on the full armour of God for our protection, especially the helmet of salvation that will protect our minds and the breastplate of righteousness to protect our hearts. And so because sin still lives within us and because none of us are ever free from its influence, there is never a moment when you can lay down your arms and take off the armour and put up your feet and say the battle is over. Except, of course, at that one moment when your earthly life comes to an end, then and only then. What does it take to fall into disgrace? The answer is to not be wholly true to God, 
to keep a veneer of religion, to make some vague confessions of sin that don't go very deep, to be among God's people at worship and all the while nurse a secret sin, an inconsistency in your witness. And in time, if left unchecked, it can grow and take you like it took Solomon. See, as much as any of us might try, sin cannot be kept as your pet. But it will always seek to be your master. Hear the Lord's words to Cain in chapter 4 of Genesis. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. Well, let's conclude this and bring it to home. I don't think the lesson is too hard to grasp. No believer can afford to fool around with sin. When writing to younger Timothy, as we heard this morning, Paul said to him, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. These are great instructions for all of us, both young and old, to guard the heart, to keep a distance from sin, to keep our service for the Lord Jesus and our confession of him unstained and free from reproach. This is no small task. It's not knocked over in a day. It's never as if you never need to think about it again. You can't just leave here and say, oh, I'll do that and have the power to do it. This is a life and death issue. You cannot fool around with sin or it will take you down and drag you under. That's the standout for me that this fall of Solomon reminds us of and it all gets back to the heart. So how do we keep our hearts right, fixed on God? One way is to remember this is to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. The primary means of God changing us is by placing before us the glory of Christ that in beholding him we become more and more like him. John Owen puts it this way, let us live in the constant contemplation of the glory of Christ and virtue will proceed from him to repair all our decays, to renew a right spirit within us and to cause us to abound in all duties of obedience. It will fix the soul unto that object which is suited to give it delight, complacency and satisfaction. When the mind is filled with the thoughts of Christ and his glory, when the soul cleaves to him with intense affections, they will cast out those causes of spiritual weakness and indisposition and nothing will so much excite and encourage our souls as a constant view of Christ and his glory.
any of us, including me, is prone to wander, wise or foolish, young or old. All of our hearts are touched by sin. All of us have the inherent weakness and favourite sins which will easily take us if we do not keep our hearts set on Christ. Consider then the God of grace is willing and did give his son to save a sinner such like Solomon, such as you and me. Think of the beauty of his love. Think of the wonder of his character that even he should pay for your sin. To keep our hearts from sin, we need to love something better than sin. We need to gaze upon something more attractive than sin. And there is nothing more than our gracious God who is worthy. See, if it was so that Solomon loved these women and that was the reason he married them, then it's a matter of the heart. And if it was so that he didn't love them and married them anyway, then it's also a matter of the heart. Solomon's father David in Psalm 86 verse 11 prays this, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Perhaps David knew that his heart was facing a division. What we do know is that our God will never ever turn his ear away from a prayer like that for an undivided heart that loves him more than anything else. Will you pray with me for that? Let's pray. Lord our God, as we consider the fall of one man, as we point a finger perhaps at him in some way, we remember that fingers are pointing back at us. We do not want to, in any sense, sit in judgment upon Solomon. For your word does that. It tells us that the issue was the heart. And where the heart was set on other things, it led to this great fall. And we could pray, Lord, search my heart. Don't allow me just a cursory glance, but search my heart, our hearts, by your Spirit. And where there is sin there that is unconfessed, that causes us to be divided in our approach to you, where we love sin more than we love the glory of Christ, we ask, Lord, root out this sin from us. Give us an undivided heart that we might fear your name and walk before you, showing endurance and faithfulness and steadfastness 
and obedience even to our dying day. Help us hear this warning that we might be delivered. Thank you that you have defeated sin and we pray that you would ever defeat it within us through your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in his wonderful name. Amen.